Hello, ladies and gentlemen. So what do improvements with the telephone system that were made years and years ago have to do with education? Or what about opinion polls about the economy? How do those tie in with our thoughts and discussion about education? We're going to find out the answers to those questions in this first part of an interview that I conducted with Greg Graham. So as you know, in the Mark's Minutes and the How Much Greater podcast, there's Mark's Minutes, there's Mark's Messages, and there's Mark's Mentors. And this is the first one in 2020 where I get to launch the Mark's Mentors part, which I think will be the most popular part of all of them. And that's where I get to interview someone that I respect, somebody that's a great influence for me and a good thinker in education. And that's what we get with Greg Graham. So Greg Graham and I crossed paths in Leander ISD. Greg has worked at several different high schools in Leander ISD. Most recently when uh, we were working together and I was on another campus, uh, he facilitated a Continuous Improvement Institute course that I went through and he was the associate principal at Rouse High School. He has served in other districts as well. And he is outside of education right now, but he's still continuing to think and write and blog about education, about systems improvement, about profound knowledge. And you can find Greg Graham at in, in search of profoundknowledge.com. He also has a Facebook page by the same name, In Search of Profound Knowledge. I will link that in the show notes, and I will also reference that again in the conclusion. But we're going to jump right into the first part of this interview. This is the first part of three in this series, my interview with Greg Graham, where we get into the overview and the basics of profound knowledge and systems thinking and continuous improvement and what all of that has to do with education. Hope you enjoy. start in with, uh, so you have uh, the blog um, In Search of Profound Knowledge, and you've been um, doing some interesting things over the, the last couple of years, and then also just in education in general, but really want to start kind of general, that, that broad view, the, the purpose, and, and kind of the, the mission you set out with, with not only the blog, but just some of your endeavors. And so just to read it here, what it says off your blog is, my purpose is to improve the learning experiences for all students by connecting the philosophy of W. Edward Deming to education today. My posts focus on what I've learned from Deming's system of profound knowledge, as well as my 20 years of experience as an educator. I do not use this blog to complain or bash educators or the education system. Instead, my goal is to help you in your current role in education by applying the principles I've learned to what I've observed. From my experience, you don't have to be the Secretary of Education, a superintendent, or a principal to improve the education system. This philosophy can transform your classroom, school, and school district. It restores the joy in learning and work for everybody. Um, so I love that. Uh, and I, the reason I wanted to start with that is because I love that so much, just different elements of that and how anybody at any role can really apply a lot of this stuff. But I'm wondering a little bit of how you got there. How did you arrive um, at this philosophy and, and this approach? And so if you could just talk about your professional journey, like what you saw in education, your, the different roles, because you mentioned 20 years of experience mm -hmm. as an educator, um, and just kind of how you arrived there and, and those roles and, and just how that evolved. 
Yeah. Um, well, Mark, I actually started out in education in 1997 as a middle school teacher and football coach. Um, and the re- the, how I got about, uh, came into that was um, I I'd left uh, graduate school in counseling psychology and was looking for the next thing to do to develop a career. And my dad had been a career-long teacher and coach, and he mentioned, hey, why don't you try this? And I looked at a number of different things, and I moved into education education because of that. And I I knew I was interested in in the the whole coaching relationship with with players and and interested in football and not as – honestly, not as much in the classroom at all. Um, But I knew that went along with uh, the coaching. So when I went into education, I I had no training whatsoever – so what I learned was on the fly, and uh, it was from other teachers. And mm. it, uh, the experience I had as a uh, as a student uh, from from high school, I mean, that was my experience, uh, middle school and high school. That, that's what I brought to the classroom. So, and what I've learned over the years is, I think a lot of our initial. Um, philosophy and education is based on our experience in, in, in school ourselves. Mm-hmm. So, you know, our, our, our initial experience, we think, well, that's the way things are supposed to be done. This is the way school is supposed to be done. And uh, I guess over the years, going from a, a, a young teacher and coach trying to do what my high school teachers and middle school teachers have done with me, trying to do the same thing, then start realizing not everything that we've done in the past is practical and doesn't lead to learning. Mm-hmm. So over the years, I've, I've learned um, that, you know, worksheets aren't necessarily good for kids. <laughs> <laughs> it may keep them busy and keep them quiet and keep them out of my hair, mm-hmm. but it, it doesn't necessarily lead to learning. It just leads to a grade. Mm-hmm. So I learned a hard lesson um, Actually, it was about 15 years ago. I started teaching and coaching at a at a, at a school, um, and the principal was new. I was brand new. The principal came in, and he was kind of uh, uh, he was really hard on the teachers, mm-hmm. and did not. Uh, he had this vision of what uh, learning should be in the classroom, but mm-hmm. from my perspective didn't really communicate it very well because I had a hard time understanding what he was wanting in the classroom. Yeah. And, and to his to his credit, he was in classrooms all the time, which was good. However, it was very stressful because he was never satisfied, yet he never really explained, at least I couldn't understand what he wanted and how to change it. Hmm. So over a two-year period, I, I got – and I had already been thinking about this and wanting this anyway – uh, I really pushed more and more to be more student centered. Um, so that that was kind of the first thing, and I had already been doing that, trying to be more student centered. But then it really, I had to be more student centered in this environment because it was a new school. I was a probationary teacher, and the way he came across is I could lose my job. I mm. they did not have to hire me back uh, the next year, and he, and he didn't have to give me any reason why. So like, well, I'm, I'm going to make sure I. And I stayed up late at night, lesson planning, trying to make sure I had good 
good written objectives and good lesson planning because we had to turn those in and he critiqued those. And so anyway, um, that was kind of my first step toward really big step toward uh, uh, being more student centered. But also because of my experience with the principal, it got me thinking about how are teachers and staff members treated in the, in the, in the school. Yeah. And he led a lot, he led by fear. And it caused a lot of stress and anxiety in my life, and I did not enjoy my job. I enjoyed the people I worked with. It was a great coaching staff. I enjoyed the students. That was a great school, had a great culture, had a great history, uh, and it's like it was one of the oldest schools in Texas. So, uh, and then uh, so that that got me thinking about leadership in a school. So I moved to Leander ISD. Uh, started coaching at, at Cedar Park High School. Um, so I was there for five years. And during those five years, I, that thought was in my mind about leadership. Uh, had a great principal uh, at, uh, at Cedar Park High School, Barb Spellman, who did, was the total opposite of the previous principal. Uh, yeah. She was very supportive. Uh, she, uh, she was very positive with us. And I thrived in that. I, I, just, I felt like I, I enjoyed my job. So um, I went through uh, the Lamar program uh, for in my master's degree and became certified as a, as a principal. And my first role was at Leander High School. And I led with trying to think of how can I support teachers, not browbeat them. Mm-hmm. And how can I create more positive uh, environments for them? And how can I create more positive environments for, for students? So... That's really kind of, when I was at Leader High School, I learned a lot more about uh, student learning. I really started thinking about what, what is it that we do? How, how does it, how, how are students learning? And we ran across uh, uh, students asking questions for Because I, mm. I was actually talking with Sarah Ambrose. We, we, had, we were putting together a, a, a presentation to, to support teachers in developing essential questions, and then we started a great conversation that lasted, still going on periodically, um, about students asking questions. So we started thinking about how do we actually learn as human beings? And like, we learn by asking questions. But yeah. we go to a classroom, students are asking questions. So, um, so, I ran a, uh, so we started that conversation, read uh, Warren Berger's uh, book, uh, More Beautiful Questions, one of those things oh, that, yeah. that was really eye-opening for me. Um, and started thinking about how innovation really takes place. It's from great questions. So uh, that kind of started everything for me as far as uh, my progress toward developing uh, a, a, a philosophy in education is, is being more student-centered that way. Mm. And then um, I'll be honest with you, the first, and probably everybody goes through this. If they're honest, they go through this. Uh, as a first-year administrator, I was, you know, you're thinking about all the, the, the systems and all the rules and regulations and things you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to learn how to be an administrator, and you get overwhelmed. Yeah. And, and I remember uh, initially uh, Brad Mansell was the first principal to hire me. And, he, you know, he, t- he made it real simple to me. He says, uh, he told me, all I want you to worry about is uh, safety and security students. And that was, you know, that's really all I needed to do because we had a great team of assistant principals there at Leander High School. Mm-hmm. Um, they were all experienced, and they really helped me out a ton. 
and then he told me this. He says, uh, he told me, uh, Greg, you've already proven yourself. Now your job is to improve every day. Mm. That took a lot of pressure off me, even though uh, Brad does put a lot of pressure on people. But in the end, it, it was all about improving and showing progress. So I felt really good about that. Um, and I remember one morning we had our uh, weekly uh, meetings uh, as an admin team uh, on Wednesday mornings at 7:30, and I remember one morning uh, it was time to uh, it was early in the semester in the fall, and we needed to have uh, we was going to send one administrator to the Continuous Improvement Institute, um, mm. and I, I as well I had no idea what the Continuous Improvement Institute was had no and I'd already been in Leander ISD for five years. Uh, and he turned to me and said, oh, Greg, I want you to go. And that was about it. So, and he explained to me later. So I go, and, um, and it turned out to be uh, really a life-changing experience for me because I, I was reintroduced to Deming um, and Deming philosophy there at the Continuous Improvement Institute. Um, well, background before uh, I even – well, I, I think I told you when I was uh, a new teacher, I was emergency certified, and I went through Stephen F. Austin to get my certification. Well, one of the courses that I took was classroom management, and the professor was Duke Brannan. And Dr. Brannan, his whole course was based on Deming. So mm. We learned a lot of Deming back in the 1999 was with, with the year that I took this course. It was over the – it was in the fall. I remember it was the fall. It was summer one. I can't remember. Um, but it was all based on Deming. And I had been introduced to Deming at that point and liked it because it was very positive. It was uh, focused on systems thinking, which I would learned a little bit through uh, my years uh, studying psychology and counseling psychology because uh, you, you'd learn a lot about family systems and things like that. Uh, so I had been introduced to that. So anyway – Fast forward to, I guess it was 2012, 13, and our Continuous Improvement Institute was all about Deming philosophy. And then different tools we learned from David Langford that he brought to Leander uh, ISD years ago. So um, that really kind of brought everything full circle for me and completely changed my thinking about not only education, but life in general. Hmm. So. Sorry, that, that's really a long answer, but that's that's where I've where I've come from. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. And actually, um, let me take a tangent here for a second, just to say um, to you uh, first and foremost. But in case anybody, um, whoever listens, so um, I one of the reasons I wanted to interview you and talk to you in particular is because I have a lot of respect for you, and I think those things that you were just bringing up, I was kind of in my head noting some things, you know, about you can lead by fear or you can lead in a way that's supportive and and inclusive and and brings others along. Um, The the whole idea of asking questions um, and being student-centered or or, even if you're working with adult learners, you know, um, participant-centered and stuff. So um, I don't know how long it was, four years ago, maybe five years ago. uh, I went back through the Continuous Improvement Institute, and you were the facilitator for our cohort. Mm-hmm. Um, you modeled all of those things, like, perfectly, and that was very um, inspiring, really. And and 
so I just want to affirm that uh, with you. And and really, when I'm around people like that, it's it's one of those experiences. You you take that, and I have hope now that that's kind of what I'm doing as a principal. That you, you take some of those characteristics. So I just wanted to mention that, and then also for anybody listening, that um, it's kind of one of the one of the key areas where our paths crossed. We had interacted before that, but um, that was that was very um, formational for me. Yeah, that was an enjoyable group. I, I learned I learned as much from you guys too. That was that was really enjoyable. Uh, that cohort and and learning get together. Uh, it, it, I really enjoyed that that year. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Um, and I believe every person in that cohort uh, went on within the next couple of years to be principals of schools somewhere. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. It was. <laughs> um, so so. How about now? So you, you're doing all of that. You're seeing that um, growing in that philosophy and education, and then you decide to step away. Mm-hmm. What has been, uh, and, and you don't have to get into why you decided to do that, mm-hmm. um, but what what has been your goal over the past you know few couple of years? So initially, what what I thought I needed a break. I needed because um, you know. Schools can be a very stressful uh, place. It's crazy. It should not be, but mm. school can be very stressful. Um, and and I just needed to step away. And because I was I was finding myself, you know, ninety five percent of my day dealing with things I didn't like dealing with. So, um, and I, I just needed. A, and I didn't. I found myself. I had entered. I had, uh, actually applied officially applied for two principal positions in, in my years as an assistant principal. Uh, I actually had uh, gotten uh, an interview with one school district uh, and made it to the second round. I was the final two, and and I wasn't sure if I wanted to take that step to be a principal anyway, mm-hmm. uh, but I was. it was one of those situations where it was a great situation, hard to pass up, and I talked myself into applying, and then it was funny, I, because I didn't care if I got the job or not, I think I interviewed so much better. So, <laughs> yeah. And, but, you know, and I was kind of relieved that I didn't get the job. Um, and then I got to a point where I, you know, I was like, I'm not applying for principal jobs. Why is that? And I'm and I, probably because I knew. I, mm. Probably for me, uh, the part of being the leader and setting the tone, the educational tone for the school is, I love that part, but all the PR work, all the other stuff, I'm not sure I would have really liked. Um, and, you know, there's other parts of the jobs, like you can't please everybody. I want to please everybody. You know, <laughs> you're not talking about this. I, I want to please everybody. But uh, you can't do that uh, as a principal. Uh, and in life, in general, you can't please everybody. So, uh, so anyway, I just, I just wanted to take a step back and kind of reevaluate career-wise, what, you know, what I want to do. And then also I wanted to take it – I was inspired by uh, learning about Deming and his philosophy. And there, even though on, I will say this, on the surface, it looks very simple. But there's hmm. so much depth to what his philosophy encompasses and what it, what it means and how to apply it. Um, so part of what I did is, I, you know, I, I purposely didn't look for a job for a year. 
and I devoted myself to, I guess, a self-imposed sabbatical. Mm-hmm. Year to, and I, I, I immersed myself in learning more and more about the Deming philosophy and, and also how does it apply to education? How does it apply to our public schools? Uh, because that's my background for 20 years. You know, how do how these two, uh, how does the system of education, how does Deming philosophy, how do they meet? And then how, how can we take Deming philosophy and improve our school system? So that, that was my whole, for a year, it's what I did. And then uh, even now I'm not as, uh, I'm not studying as much, but every day I think about Deming and, and um, uh, his philosophy. So it, it has a big impact on my life. Yeah, yeah. Well, so let's get into that then, This the Deming philosophy and the school system. And one of the things, um, because I think you're right about the, uh, it seems simple, and then there's a lot of depth to it. And people like me, I don't think really understand the depth piece, you know, all the intricacies of it. And so um, starting at that kind of simple level where we say, okay, you're going to develop a theory of learning. Um, <laughs> but but kind of to whatever extent you can, unpack that a little bit. How does one go about developing or discovering their theory of learning? This this is a great question because I think 25 years ago, if if you would have asked me, Greg, what is your philosophy on on education, philosophy of learning? I would have gone back to what I knew in the past from my high school, middle school experience, uh, and I think we all go to that. That's like, okay, that's my first experience of what a school should be, and then that's that's kind of what we believe it is. So, um, but today I've, I've run across something. Uh, Russell Acuff, um wrote this book called Idealized Design, and uh, he's a great systems thinker. Uh, work, he was a professor at the Wharton School, and uh, anyway, he 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 tells a story about I think it's the 1930s, 40s. I can't remember. I have to go back and look. And uh, he had a fr- engineering friend of his that was uh, that worked for Bell Telephone Labs, and he goes to Bell Telephone Labs to visit his friend. And that morning, all these engineers are summoned to this conference room, and this I think the president of Bell Telephone Labs is there, and he explains to them that the telephone system, the telecommunication systems in America has gone down and destroyed. Hmm. And, and you know, they are in that room to help rebuild it. And everybody's, you know, looking at each other is like, yeah. serious? And it's like, I just used the phone, you know. you know, But this guy it, it sold it. And, and it, it changed their mindset to thinking, okay, all right, the, the telephone system no longer is no longer functioning. Now what do we do? How do we rebuild it? Uh, so, you know, the, the president explains to them, no, that, that it hasn't been destroyed or anything, but let's think about what are the innovations that have happened since we started. And they started talking about all the different things that have happened, and all the innovations had happened 50 years before that. Nothing had happened for 50 years. Hmm. So the, the, the president explains to them, like, we're, we need to change this. 
we need to become more innovative. And he split them up, up into four different teams, and basically their idea was, or the, they, the premise was, imagine if the telephone system has been completely destroyed, how would you rebuild it? But there's two caveats to it. One, it, you know, to rebuild it, the technology has to be feasible. It's like, you know, you, for example, you can't teleport. That would be, you know, well, at least today we can't do it yet. Uh, maybe <laughs> years from now, Star Trek, we can do that. But yeah. it's, it's impossible to do that. And then also you'd have to be able to abide by the, the laws today. So you can't, you can't break a law to be able to redesign the telephone. So basically those two things. Um, so when I heard that, you know, oh, one thing, though, that came from this, some of the technology we, we take for granted today was developed from that, that project. Mm. So the, the dial tone, of course, we don't really have dial tones anymore because we're using our cell phones, but the touchtone telephone was developed. So our keypad that we have today is, was developed from that. Mm. Uh, call waiting, caller ID was developed from that. So all these innovations came from that one uh, I guess, exercise. And, you know, it also, back in those days, Bell Telephone was a monopoly. So, you know, it illustrates the fact that, you know, you don't have to have competition to have innovation. So competition is not a requirement of innovation. You can still innovate without having competition. So this whole point of we need schools to compete with each other, not necessary. Mm. In fact, it'd probably be better if we all co- cooperated with each other. Which today, yeah. in this age of you know uh, social distancing and the COVID nineteen pandemic, you know, it's an opportunity for us to to be able to to cooperate more because we need to learn. You know, you know Leander ISD is is doing certain things with their distance learning or they're learning digitally, and Randolph ISD is doing something else. Those should be communicating communicating with each other and sharing yeah. best ideas and what's yeah. work. So, anyway. I couldn't agree more. But yeah. yeah. Keep going. So, anyway, my, when I heard that, I was like, okay, imagine if if our schools, like, were destroyed. We don't have a school system, which basically <laughs> today is kind of – our school, school today is completely different than it was six weeks ago. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's almost like it's real now. The school system, as we know it, no longer exists. So yeah. if, imagine if you were to rebuild our school system or imagine rebuilding a school, uh, you know, what would, what, how would you do it? What, what would be the needs of the learners? What, what do our learners need? And what are those systems we could build that would meet those needs? And, and when you start thinking about that, you start thinking about all the things that are archaic and obsolete that we do in school. Um, and, you know, some of those things we need to stop doing. And I've yeah. heard David Langford say that a lot. Like, some things we need to stop doing in education. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's other things we need to start doing more of um, that would meet our, our students' needs and their future needs as, as adults. So, to me, developing that education philosophy, a great way to do that is this this whole idea of idealized design and imagining School doesn't exist anymore. What would you do differently? How would you re, re, how would you rebuild schools? And that, that's kind of how I've, over the last few years, thought about schools in my education philosophy. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, that's good. That's good. I've heard somebody refer to it kind of as the way of the whiteboard. So like take everything you know about your system the way it is now, write it down on a whiteboard and then erase it. Yeah. And, and start over. Um, mm-hmm. It sounds like the same same kind of idea. So you just kind of go through that process of idealizing what you would want that design to be like and look like, and that then and you go through that process. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So if you remember uh, the bone diagram in it. Listeners will know what a bone diagram is. Basically, a bone diagram is, is, a, is a process you can go through to improve uh, a process or a system. And you, you start with the ideal, the perfect. What, what would the ideal be in the situation? And then, that's, and then you compare that with what you're doing now. What does the system look like right now? The good and the bad. It doesn't matter. What is it we're doing now? And then what are some things that are or what does it look like now? And then what are the drivers moving us in the ideal? And what are the, the barriers keeping us from that ideal? And then you can start working on the barriers. So it's same, I think it's, it's very similar to that concept. Yeah, okay, okay. Hey, so um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is back in March of last year, you uh, had a blog post um, about the aim of an organization. And mm-hmm. there were some thoughts um, that kind of jumped out at me. And I'm not even sure if I understand why they also jumped out at me, uh, mm-hmm. but it's something that just like, mm, I'm intrigued by that. Um, I want to share a few of those and then just see if you want to kind of elaborate on any of these. Uh, okay. w- one was this idea that management in any form is prediction. Mm-hmm. Another one, it would seem ridiculous to make plans for the past. Mm-hmm. And then finally, when managing an organization, we must know where we are going and everybody in the organization should know the direction we are heading. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems very simple, and I think everybody would agree that a good manager or good leader should be thinking about the future and and not reacting to the past. That, That seems obvious, but in practicality, what we see we see a lot more reaction at times than we see planning for the future. Um, so there's a quote, and I can't remember the, the exact wording of the quote, but it's from Wayne Gretzky. And I'm, I'm not a hockey fan at all. I've seen two hockey games my whole life, but I understand this concept. He says, you know, uh, good hockey players play where the, the puck is. Great hockey players play where the puck is going to be. Hmm. So, you know, if you're, if we're, if we're going to be, you know, with this concept, managing, I'm not talking about the difference between a manager and a leader here. We're talking about, you know, part of being a leader is you have to manage a system. And uh, in order to manage a system, you have to know what you need in the future for that system to produce. So um, I, I think it's, it's, it's easier said than done to predict the future. Um, one of the things that, that Deming talked about with statistics was the use of statistics that actually predict the future mm. and creating studies that can help us for the future know what to do. Um, so a lot of what our statistics that we use nowadays, we think about what happened in the past. Um, you know, real simple, a uh, an opinion poll is – is only good for what's happening at that moment in history. Um, 
if you if you took an opinion poll from January on the economy, it was only good for that point in time in January. It would not have done anything to predict the future that we've you know, like obviously now the economic situation we're in now is completely different than it was in January. Right. It does not really do anything to predict. However, um, I think it's, it's analytical studies that look at uh, what could be done in the future. So a great example is um, uh, agriculture has done a great job with this in our history. Um, there's a reason why America has been called the breadbasket of the world because our, our development of agriculture has been, you know, well, one is we've got great soil, great climate, all that, but uh, we have also tested uh, things. So different crops grown in different combinations of soil and different amounts of water and different uh, fertilizer, you look at the different things, you're like, that helps actually predict what we could do in the future. So you can have Let's say you have like five different ways of growing something. You have, in fact, actually, I just saw this. I was in Arizona. I was at the uh, the Biosphere Two. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's at the University of Arizona. It's just north of Tucson, and they were actually looking at uh, so solar panels there in Arizona are big. Uh, okay. And and they were looking at uh, you know you have these fields of solar panels. Uh, to generate electricity, but at the same time, if you have those those uh, the solar panels, you may you would think you might lose that ground as cropland. And what they did, what I saw at the at the biosphere, they were testing crops being grown underneath the uh, uh, the solar panels versus crops that are grown in open sun. And because of the way the desert is there in, in Arizona, and there's not much shade. You could, and it was easy to see from where we were. Uh, the crops that were grown in, in open sun were not growing as well as the ones that were under the solar panels, because actually the solar panels were giving were shading the the crops just enough where it could grow. Uh, getting too much sun was inhibiting the growth of the, the plant. Okay. So, so that was some, that's something that's like it's predictive. So, if we do this, if we grow plants underneath the solar panels, they will grow faster. The hypothesis. So we're proving that the the, the hypothesis is true here, uh, or supporting the hypothesis. So it's something we can use in the future in Arizona. If if they want to grow cotton, they can grow cotton, but keep it. And so now it's a good thing because you're able to generate electricity through the sun. But also at the same time, uh, get a big, bigger uh, crop yield because you're using that shade. So that's something that's predictive. Um, so I can't remember where I was going with this. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I, I think uh, with what Deming was talking about with prediction is that if you're looking forward and trying to predict where you need to be in the future and what the future needs of your students are, um, whether it be the next concept that they'll be learning in a math course or even as broad as what what skills do we need to develop for them to be successful adults in our society you know that that's really where we should be that's really what should be driving our our management our leadership yeah yeah okay um that 
it kind of leads me. Um, I almost want to jump ahead, but I'm going to I'm going to stay disciplined here in, in, the, yeah. in the format of I'm thinking of, but um, because a little bit later I, I want to get a little bit more into. Uh, it seems like so what you're saying, and, and even as a principal right now, I'm trying to grasp that and get my head wrapped around that because it seems like moving away from um, you know some of these uh, you know what people might call lagging indicators and shifting to leading indicators or being more predictive in our work. Uh-huh. Um, it seems like there's this bungee cord effect, almost a rubber band effect that keeps pulling us back into a reactive looking at the past mm-hmm. um, mode. Um, and so trying to find ways out of that, but we, we can unpack that in a, in a little bit. And for, um, and for listeners, uh, this this interview would be posted and, and uh, put out in sections, and so that's the next section of the interview is what we'll kind of dig into a little bit more with that data analysis piece and and mm-hmm. some advice on that. Yeah. Um, you are um, active on Twitter, correct? Yes. Okay. Somewhat. At- I'm not as active as I should be, but yes, I, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm on, I'm, I am on Twitter. So if you uh, and you're at Greg Graham, and the, that kind of information will all be in the notes for the episode and, and post it as well and I'll I'll share that um, as well. But the blog is in search of profound knowledge.com and I know that you've kind of taken a little break from it, uh, but if you start doing that again or Twitter, is there anywhere else that um, people can follow your work or are those the best places? Uh, on Facebook, there is a In Search of Profound Knowledge page on Facebook as well. So that, uh, in fact, oh, that's even better. there are times that I may post something there um, that may not be, definitely won't be on the blog, but they may be on the Facebook page, In Search of Profound Knowledge, uh, as well as Twitter. So okay. mostly something that I see that's current event-wise in education that deals with, like, the dimming, is uh, you know his philosophy deals with and I, I usually put it on there okay okay perfect awesome Well, thanks for listening today. I hope that after part one of this interview, you can already see just what a smart guy Greg Graham is and uh, how much wisdom he has to share with the rest of us. There was a lot to process here. I will just highlight a couple of things that stood out to me is this this whole thinking about our approach to education is shaped by our initial experience. You know, our teachers are in the school system mostly because it worked well for them. Uh, I had a, an assistant principal that I worked with, a, a colleague uh, Jeremy Stahl and Leander ISD that w- that said it like this. He said, you know, it worked so well for the teachers that are in the system now that they came back for round two. And that's something just to, to keep in mind. And then this thought that competition is not necessary. It's actually a challenge for me because I think competition adds a lot that pushes people forward. But um, he makes a good point here and a good example that even in education, without that competition, Uh, we can still continuously improve. So those are some things. I hope there was something there for you to reflect on in part one and that you're looking forward to part two as well. Remember, Greg Graham can be found at Greg Graham on Twitter. That's G-R-E-G-G 
R-A-H-A-M. And then his blog is InSearchOfProfoundKnowledge.com. And you can search on Facebook for In Search of Profound Knowledge and find that Facebook page as well. Have a great day.